Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Good morning. What is one of the reasons that God gave us the Ten Commandments? Have you ever wondered that? It was a hot summer evening in Winona Lake, Indiana, back in 2005, August to be exact, when I found out the answer to that question. What is one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments? I was sitting there in a screened-in porch, and we were watching a video, and I had a man on the street speaking to people, and he had a question. He said, would you consider yourself to be a good person? And as I'm sitting watching the video, I'm kind of thinking along, yes, I think I'm a good person. And he said, let me ask you some questions from the Ten Commandments to see if it's true that indeed you're good. And he said, how many lies have you told in your life? And I thought, multiples, many. He said, what do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. He said, another commandment, thou shalt not steal How many things have you stolen in your life? And this is back at a time when you could steal music on CDs. It was called burning CDs. I thought, guilty. What do you call someone who steals things? A stealer. No, only in Pittsburgh. You call that person, you call that person a thief, right? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Unfortunately, I thought, yes, I I had Well, that is called blasphemy. It's a very serious sin. And as I'm watching this man on the screen speak to people, helping them see that indeed they are not good, that what Scripture says is very true. No one is good, not one. I got to tell you, I still remember that night. It made such an impression on me that I am not a good person. I'm not just a good guy that committed a few sins that God had to forgive But in fact, I was guilty of dishonoring my God, my parents, and others. So what is the point of the Ten Commandments? What is one of the uses? Well, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19, it says, The law's purpose is that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law, we see how indeed, man, we have blown it, not just a little bit, but very, very big. Another parallel to this is imagine you're not doing real well financially and you're going to go to the bank and think, I think I'm like 60 bucks overdrawn. I think I'm 60 bucks in the negative. Let me just see if that's true. And the teller says, you're in a deficit of over $6 million. $6 million? I thought it was a little, when indeed it's much larger than you could ever imagine. That is a picture of our sin debt. Well, this week, as we keep walking through the Ten Commandments, we're ready for commandment number seven, as Jody read. Five words, you shall not commit adultery. And I got to tell you, there's something I want to talk about, address briefly. There's this issue in the Old Testament, and it's called polygamy. It's people with multiple marriages. 
And it's fascinating because you start to read about multiple marriages, and it seems a little bit out of control. Um, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But we see kings, we see rulers, we see patriarchs are mainly the people who have multiple wives. We see that jealousy, anguish, family problems are the norm when this is committed. But this idea of multiple spouses is not God's design, right? From the very beginning, we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we see the first marriage, right? Adam and Eve. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. And so, just to be clear, there were over 3,000 men mentioned in the Bible. And out of those 3,000 men, about 33 of them were in a polygamy situation where they had multiple wives. So don't think it's normal. Don't let any other religious group convince you that maybe this is an option. No way. But we do see it in Scripture. Now, I want to look at three ways this morning three ways to break the seventh commandment. And just to be clear, I'm not saying you should, I'm saying this is how it is possible to break this commandment. If you remember, we're here in Exodus 20, right? We've got the Israelites that were in Egyptian slavery. They're now out of this bondage. They're on their own. They're working their way through the wilderness. And this command here comes early on in their journey. And God is saying, if you want this journey to work, out of slavery to the land I promise you, you've got to abide by some rules, specifically these Ten Commandments. And one way this is going to work is if you're faithful to your spouse. Husbands, stay committed to wives. Wives, stay committed to your husband. And we see that as they continue the journey through the wilderness, these Ten Commandments will be repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5 because a new generation is getting ready to go into the promised land and they need to be reminded of these commandments. Now, as I said, polygamy was a little bit of a problem. Let me just give you a couple specifics before we move on from that. Uh, King David, right? You think of David and Goliath. You don't think of David and his eight wives and unnumbered concubines, but that was true of him. A concubine is a woman united in marriage who was inferior to a regular wife. They had no authority in the family or household affairs. So we see David, King David, man who wrote many great psalms. We see him failing in this area. We see his son, Solomon. This is not a textual error. It says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So it's really hard to be committed to your spouse when you have 999 needing your love and attention. Uh, the scripture record doesn't reflect real well on this. Uh, in Nehemiah, it speaks of Solomon. It says, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made his God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin because he's connecting with these women and all their foreign gods come along with them. Then David's grandson, Rehoboam, takes 18 wives and 60 concubines. And then David's great-grandson, Abijah, takes 14 wives. So obviously polygamy, not what God wants. 
Uh, we know that God wants marital faithfulness, as we see in this commandment today. So, don't commit adultery, right? I think that wraps it up. We can just finish it up, right? Pray and be done. Well, Scripture elaborates. Uh, the Proverbs, they give us some illustrations. They warn you about this folly, this horrible idea of adultery. And now you only warn in order to protect someone, right? There's a sign, danger, high voltage, danger, hazardous chemicals. We've got a tornado warning. Get in your basement. There is a hurricane warning. Flee to another state. There is a tsunami warning. Try to probably find another continent. It's bad. I don't know what you do, but you are warned because disaster is coming. So Proverbs, in a few ways, illustrates. And we see in Proverbs 6, they ask a couple questions. Starting in chapter 6, verse 27 to 29, it says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Rhetorical answer, no, no. It says, so is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. You will not escape without experiencing some severe pain, more than you know. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 32, it says, A man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot. His shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. If you're committing adultery, it's not just you and this other person. You're bringing other family members into the equation, and saying sorry may not cut it. In fact, it may cost you your life. Proverbs 7 continues with some animal illustrations. Proverbs 7, starting in verse 21, talks about this woman who led a foolish man astray. It says, she led him astray with her smooth talk. At once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. It's just a big, dumb animal walking to the slaughterhouse. Well, this will be fine. And then you're dead. Proverbs continues, you're like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. The ignorance just continues until it leads to a very painful death. Or like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. He's flying along another day, flying into a trap, and it all ends rather quickly. Proverbs writers, God through his wisdom is saying, don't do it. I'm telling you not to. And time and time again, we see it's just a horrible idea. It's like the mouse nowadays, right? Going for the cheese on the trap, crushes the mouse. Or like reading an email from a Nigerian prince that wants to give you millions and all you got to do is give them your bank routing numbers. Dumb. Don't do it. Don't do it. And the writer of Proverbs continues. He says, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. This adulterous woman, this woman who wants to bring you into her trap. He says, don't let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she's brought down. Her slain are a large number. 
Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. Amen. If you choose to go down this path of adultery, it's a big, dumb decision that'll expose your ignorance and it'll change your life forever. So he's saying, sons, listen to me. Before you do this, don't. Don't. So as we read through Proverbs, there are several principles, but just a few that stand out. If you walk down this path of this sin, it says you're life may be in danger due to the spouse of the person you're committing adultery with. You're going to lose your honor. You're going to lose your strength. Your reputation will be ruined. You're inviting bondage to sin, bondage to death into your life, and you are destroying yourself. We see even back in the book of Genesis, the life of Joseph Potiphar's wife wants to entice Joseph, and he says, no, I cannot do this. I cannot commit this sin against God. But before you think I'm just saying the women are always the problem, that's not what I'm saying. Proverbs gives these examples where maybe there's a woman trying to entice, but we see very clearly illustrated in the life of David this sin of adultery that's committed. Now, you got to know David, you know, David and Goliath, David, the shepherd boy, he had such great intentions. He started out writing songs to God, which we know is the Psalms. Listen to some of these words that he penned. He says, keep your servant from willful sins that they may not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. He says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And later he says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. What law is he referring to? Well, it would have included books of the Bible, such as Leviticus, where this verse is there, where it says, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and make yourself unclean with her. The law he loved also informed David of consequences that were coming to the adulterer including Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lies with the, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So David has these high hopes, these ambitions. He says, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live right before you, God. And so often we don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And so the famous story, David and Bathsheba, one commentator says David is roughly 50 years old at this time. David already has eight wives. He's got multiple concubines, and he's still not satisfied. So if you think this is just a sin of his youth, it's not. It can happen to anyone at any age. We can make a foolish, devastating decision. And what happens is this sin leads to David being found out. It leads to cover-up. It leads to deception. He tries to make all of this go away, and just the opposite happens. It's recorded in Scripture, and people have been reading about this foolishness for the last 3,000 years. So from what begins as no one will know, right? Satan says nobody is going to find out. The sin is committed now he's going to know. And so we go into cover-up mode. 
So David's foolish sin here leads to him arranging the death of the husband, of the woman he had adultery with. And so you think for a minute, hold on. David clearly violates God's law, right? Warnings, don't do this, you're going to die. And yet David doesn't die. He does. He continues to live, and this puzzled me. And then you think about it, well, who is going to enforce these laws? The king is going to oversee the enforcement of these laws. So David doesn't enforce the law upon himself, but if you read David's life as it continues, there's a big old mess. Sometimes there's worse consequences than dying. It's living with the bitter consequences of your sin. And this story continues throughout centuries and into our day to day. Just watch any Dateline show and you'll see the names have changed, but the stories are very similar, often adultery and murder involved. Well, if you dig down a little deeper, this kind of points to this idea of not being satisfied, right? David already had multiple wives. He's the king. He can have whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And we think, man, I would just be satisfied if I had a different spouse. I had a different car. I had a different home. I lived somewhere warmer that wasn't gray for five months out of the year. I would really be satisfied if you would really be satisfied if you walked with God, right? You'd really be satisfied if you strive to live your life to please him. So we come to our commandment today, right? You shall not commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20 verse 14. And you may think, I haven't physically done this, and that's great. So let's just keep going. Well, just like driving on the highway every day, I'll see cars pulled over, and I'll think, man, I'm so glad that's not me. Well, for this command we're going to examine today, you better look in the rearview mirror and see the lights flashing, because you may need to pull over. You may also be guilty. Now, on the surface, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Many people guiltless. And even at the time of Jesus, the most diligent Bible students of that day, the Pharisees, they thought they were doing really well. In fact, there's one famous Pharisee in a parable Jesus told to a bunch of groups, to a group of people who thought they were doing really well. They thought they were really righteous. Listen to part of the prayer of this Pharisee. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. And Jesus says, you think you're righteous? Just wait, just wait. The first way to break the seventh commandment is with your body. The second way to break the seventh commandment is with your mind. Jesus arrives, he's in the first century, he's speaking with the Sermon on the Mountain. He expands on this. He shows us what you really need to know is religious being right with God isn't just checking all the boxes exteriorly, externally, but he says this in Matthew 5. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to, causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. It'd be better that than your whole body be thrown into hell. I think, well, this is pretty radical. And to the original audience, think about this, not having a hand or missing an eye would mean that 
for the rest of your life as a Jewish person in the first century, you will not be allowed to go to the temple. It would just be unacceptable. And so Jesus is saying, I would rather have your heart right than you just continuing to go to the temple, you checking off these religious ceremonies. I'd rather have you show up and really mean it or not show up at all. And Jesus is also saying the drastic measures to say, stay far from this sin. Yet anyone who looks with lust commits adultery in the heart because it's the heart, Jesus says, where evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander flow out of. God's not only concerned about the outside, but the inside, obviously. So here's a question. What do we do with our thoughts? Some people nowadays want to say your thought life is irrelevant. It's not that big of a deal. You can view objectionable material. It's just not a big deal unless it's happening physically. That's what some unbelieving people say. But the fact is you can find about anyone anywhere to accommodate your sin. You know that? You can find any church, any church, air quotes, any group that can justify you and give you a pass if you look hard enough. Martin Luther said we can't control what birds fly over our head, you know, like the thoughts that pass through your mind. We can't control which ones fly over our head, but we can keep them from making a nest in our head right? Thoughts come and go, but do we entertain those thoughts or do we move on to something else? Job says this, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to lust after a young woman. Job, he says, I'm not going to entertain these thoughts. Romans, Paul writes, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't put yourself in a situation where you can fulfill your desires. So what do we do? It's one thing to just say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to think about that. What do we do? Just have a vacant mind? Uh, no, we need to renew our mind. We need to read God's word. We need to read good Christian books. We need to have conversations with other believers that'll edify us, that'll build us up. We need to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, could this movie be a stumbling block? Could going here, could this activity, could me bringing up something lead them into sin? And if so, they are much more valuable than what I want. So we need to be looking out for one another as we seek to honor God with our mind. So the first way we can break this seventh commandment is with your body. The second way is with your mind. And the third way is with your soul. So not only human to human are we unfaithful to each other but the old testament is amazingly illustrative with israel falling into idolatry again and again instead of worshiping the creator they were worshiping the creation instead of worshiping the god who made the stones and the trees they were worshiping the stones and the trees so what did god do he just said ah I get it. We all make mistakes now. No, God sent his prophets, as one person described, as his prosecuting attorneys. He sent them to call his people back to him. Listen to some of these indictments. 
Isaiah, who is classified as a major prophet because it's got a major amount of words in it. It's got 66 chapters. Isaiah says this about Jerusalem. To see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Jeremiah said, speaking of Israel, he said, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. In Ezekiel, he said, I'm filled with fury against you, declares the sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you build your mounds at every street corner and your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment, you adulterous wife. You preferred strangers to your own husband. Ezekiel continues about his people. He said, they didn't care about my Sabbaths and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. So it wasn't just this generation, but the father's generation that was being passed down this idea of unfaithfulness. And then you think of the whole book of Hosea. It's really about the physical adultery that one man endured by his wife. And God says, you see this? You see this messed up, broken relationship? I say, yeah. He said, that is exactly how you are treating me. You're committing spiritual adultery. So these people were just going through the motions, right? They were saying one thing, living another way. And that's not me making a judgment. That's me reading scripture. Where Isaiah 29 says, these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And the fear of me is just a commandment taught by men. As one person said, they said, it's amazing how many people prefer religion over a real relationship with God. It's amazing how many people walk out of a room on a Sunday and they don't really think about God at all the rest of the week. So we see this spiritual adultery. We see this idea that God actually cares about his relationship with you. If you know him and have a relationship with God through Christ, he actually cares. Someone said, God personally feels his relationship with you. You are not a number. You're not just some category. You are individually known, and God knows you at a level no one else does. He invites you to walk with him, and in return, he says, I will walk with you. But spiritual adultery is unfaithfulness to God. It's excessive devotion to the things of this world. The Bible tells us that people who choose to be friends with the world are an adulterous people having enmity with God. Now, what does it mean have, being friends with the world? Like, I can't be friends with anyone who's not a Christian? No, that's not it. The world and its system that thrives off of deceit and phony values and worthless pursuits and unnatural affections, things that lead you and want you to be drawn away from God. So really, spiritual adultery is any type of idolatry. It's any activity that gets between us and God. Anything that is put above our relationship with him. It could be our career. It could be our home. It could be other people. It could be food, sports. It could be any number of things. It's anything else that takes place on the throne of our hearts instead of him. 
So we see this commandment can be broken in three different ways, right? Our body, our mind, our soul. So where do we go from here, right? Do not commit adultery. It's a good place to start. Uh, but considering we are not guiltless, right? Three takeaways I want to share with you. First of all, if any change is going to happen, it needs to begin with vertical repentance. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he wrote later in Psalm 51, he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. So we need to first realize that our sin is not just merely against other people, but first and foremost, it is against God. So we tremble at a little sin so it doesn't lead to a greater sin. It's not from me. It's from someone else. That's good. But we tremble because even a small, seemingly small sin is against God. A large sin is against God. And we need to, first of all, say, God, this matters. Even the smallest, the smallest. But, you know, this attitude of being sorry towards God is really the big mark between Christians and people that are not Christians, right? If you are someone who thinks, man, I just disappointed my family, uh, what are people going to think? And you don't even think about God. That's just a worldly sorrow, right? Ah, shucks, the consequences are coming. But instead, we say, God, it's against you. I violated you and your holiness, first and foremost. So it begins with our relationship with God, right? A vertical repentance saying, Lord, forgive me. I want to turn. Help me turn. And also having some humility here, right? It's easy to see all the problems out there instead of seeing the problems brewing here. You get low and you stay low and you humble before God and say, any of these commandments I could break at a level that would dishonor your name on such a large scale, Lord. It could happen to me. Also, we can find faults in everybody else. We can find faults in our spouse, our friends, spiritual leaders, coworkers, bosses. Yet there is no fault in God. There's no justification ever to sin or bend our standards just because we think, you know what, I deserve this. I am justified. They, they have let me down. I'm going to let them down as well. No, there's no fault in God. So we want to live before him in an ever-growing repentance. The second way is we want to start with the end in mind, right? Resolve to have the end of your life in mind right now. We see in Proverbs 5, there's advice from a godly father to his son, and he says, if you disregard the right way, God's way, specifically in this area of adultery, you're going to regret it. And he said, he said, at the end of your life, you're going to groan, when your flesh and body are consumed and you're going to say how I hated discipline, how my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Think, man, what do you want to be remembered for? Also meditate on the fact that if you commit adultery, you're going to get caught. And I got to tell you, if there's one area where Christians and Christian leaders seem to fall in more than others, it seems to be this area. So what boundaries do we set? I think, frankly, you need to speak with your spouse about this. You figure out what boundaries 
to set so you don't go out of bounds. But listen to this in 1 Corinthians. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. They will not inherit the kingdom. Adulterers is in this list. And so the warning here, right, in the Old Testament, death is the consequence of adultery. In the New Testament, we see this can also lead to divorce, but ultimately damnation. This can lead to maybe someone exposing the fact they don't really know Jesus after all, if indeed this is what you live and you love. It says those people who practice these things won't inherit the kingdom. So, our friend in Proverbs says, think about the end of your life. Honestly, that stuff's hard for me to think of. You know, like that could be 50 years. It could be 20 minutes. It could be 10 years. I don't know. That's kind of can feel like a lot of theory. Um, so sometimes it just doesn't feel real. And so how about, how would I like to feel at the end of today? How would I like to feel at the end of this next week, next month? next year, which rolls into five years, 10, 20, whatever God gives you. But what if we just try and walk with him now, right? We walk with him today, keeping the end in view, saying, Lord, I want to leave a legacy. So I'm not groaning. So I'm not thinking, ah, if I would have only listened. Finally, our final note today, right? We want to First of all, for our takeaways, it's got to begin with vertical repentance, start with the end in mind, and thirdly, walk with God. If you have a spouse, walk with God, love them, let your marriage reflect the gospel, right? This love that Christ has for the church, love them, walk with God. If you're single, walk with God, let your life reflect that of a life submitted to Christ. And guess what? When you walk with God, you're not going to isolate yourself. You're going to walk with other believers. You are going to need other believers to point you to Jesus. Because I've had friends say to me and me say to friends, I have really blown it. I can't believe this, what I've done. I say, you know what? I'm not surprised in myself or you. This is why we need Christ, perfect life in our place for our sins. We remind each other of the gospel because frankly, we can get really discouraged. We can get really down on ourselves. We can get really introspective to the point we're not even thinking past ourselves. As one person said, for every time you look at yourself, look at Christ 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. I can't remember the quote. The point is, look to him. And ultimately, what if this final thought, final question what if someone you knows comes to you and says, I know what you did. I know your past. You've even sinned against me, and yet you're a Christian. What do you say? If indeed you were wrong, you say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. And that's why I'm a Christian. Because I need him. Because I fail in so many ways. And maybe if Christians have a culture of honesty, confessing our failures, but saying it's not about us, but it's about Christ. Maybe this would destroy the myth in the world that Christians are the people that do the good things that go to heaven and the non-Christians are the people that do the bad things and go to hell. No, no, no. But instead, the people who go to heaven 
are the people who are forgiven because of what Christ has done. Jesus didn't come to call people who thought they were righteous, but rather those who knew that they were sinners. So at the end of all of this, what is one of the points of the Ten Commandments? It's to show us how we have sinned deeply and how we have a great Savior who pays that debt in full. So the law condemns us, but we seek Christ so that we can live. Let's pray. Father, we are so unfaithful too often in our words and our deeds. Lord, we need your help. We ask that your Holy Spirit would give us strength to say no to our fleshly desires. Lord, that we live for you and that we are yours. So we look to Jesus, our only hope. We look to him. We pray our eyes would not stray from him. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.